Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we're talking Excalibur 99, Fire with Fire, in which there's lots of talk of modems and London is menaced by a couple of big red evil guys, only one of which is Onslaught. Excalibur number 99 was originally published in July 1996 and the creative team is Warren Ellis on writing, Casey Jones on pencils, Tom Simons on inks, Arianne Lenshock and Malibu's Hughes on colors, Richard Starkings and Comicraft on letters and Suzanne Gaffney on editing. Lucifer, would you like to respond? This is going to be hard for you to understand, but I've been through hell recently, both figuratively and literally. Welcome back to our regularly scheduled in-depth analysis of every issue of the epic, critically adored, and fanishly beloved 1996 crossover event Onslaught. I am joking, of course, we only do Excalibur chat on this pod, and as usual, Excalibur's connection to the larger X-Men world is tenuous at best, and we wouldn't have it any other way. But who are we, starting with myself? I am Dr. Annabelle Pirate. I talk about representations of stuff, especially gender and sexuality stuff in comics and pop culture, and especially superhero stuff. I am also the co-project lead of Sequential Scholars, where Andrew and I should be talking about TMNT, The Last Ronin, at the time of this episode dropping. Um, We also recently debuted some super exciting videos based on past threads, focusing on Kate Beaton's wonderful graphic novel, Ducks, which you can find at the Sequential Scholars Twitter account. Trying to diversify our brand beyond Twitter a little bit, we'll see how we do. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and he doesn't need my help this week. He's wearing a Pac-Man sweater, so he clearly wins this comic book. I am joined, as always, by Mav. What's firing you up this week uh i I hate contractors actually if you are a contractor i've been a contractor so if you are a contractor and you make your living that way i've got no problem with you as long as you're doing everything that you can to make make your living that way if however you're a contractor who decides that you want to be you know viciously sexist against my wife and complain and then when she when she complains about it tell tell them that you don't want that never mind you don't want to work with us and don't you don't want to do the work that we've paid you for and then walk off the job then i'm going to be really irritated Um, especially if when she calls you say i don't need this pettiness it's not worth it apparently snyder installations of charleroi pennsylvania is not good (laughs) does not does not want our business so like you're you're wondering hey 
how can I get my garage door installed somewhere in the in the Western Pennsylvania area? Do not ask Justin Snyder of, of Snyder Installations. That's my anti-commercial for today because I am spiteful because apparently he didn't like petty, but I can be petty. And I'm a regular host of two podcasts, which get, you know, not the best region in the world, but, you know, enough that I can be petty about it. That's the reason I'm here. I also might be sharing this information with the students that I teach in the area because, again, wow. pettiness wow. goes a long way. That's where I'm at. That's how I'm doing. That's what's under my, <laughs> that's what I've been doing today. And it's how I'm feeling. Also, hi, my name is Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. I'm host of this show, another show called Box Podcast. And I teach at the University of Pittsburgh things about comics and, uh, you know, things like that. But that wasn't nearly as fun as just doing an anti-commercial for a guy who irritated me and my wife personally today. Just coming in here, <laughs> dropping names, yeah. starting fires. That's what I've been doing today. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Andrew, remind us of your mystical secrets. I did actually receive a book on how to start learning witchcraft thrown into an order of Ooh. books I bought. And awesome. I, yeah, I, I, if I had anything resembling free time, I'd 100% be plaguing a rural municipality sheep population by now. Uh, instead, <laughs> I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann, a lecturer, senator, and governor at St. John's University, which sounds esteemed-ish, but I'm also, through the Claremont Run and Sequential Scholars, a public-facing comic scholar, which resulted in me being called a vulgar term for a mentally disabled person by strangers on the internet more than once today. So let's wow. about balance. <laughs> oh what, what thread did you quote? Like, what thread did you do that resulted in that? Uh, uh, Ramsey Fawaz's theory of queer mutanity applied to Colossus. Wow. Wow. I saw it, Andrew. Oh. I saw it. <laughs> wow. I saw it. I was so mad. I was so mad. Yeah. Well, congratulations. I mean, you're pissing off the right people, so yeah. that's always a badge of honor. There's but... a very good chance that the individual who yelled at you tried to install my garage door opener. Just <laughs> we've done a little bit. <laughs> Great. Well, we'll continue our tradition of. I don't know what I'm. I was like, what is that tradition? We'll continue our tradition of like dropping names. I was like, I don't have anyone that I'm specifically griping about this week, so I, I'm not able to participate actually. Um, but I would like to introduce our wonderful guest <laughs> and maybe he's got specific gripes to get off his chest we will see so our genial group is joined this week by a fellow scholar who we've been wanting to have on the pod for quite a while actually and we're super happy the stars finally aligned to make it work the pod is absolutely chuffed to welcome dr anthony michael d'agostino welcome tony Yay. hi guys <laughs> Hi. <laughs> We're so happy to have you. Really looking forward to the convo. I'll give you a little bio to introduce you to our listeners first, and then we'll get into it. So Dr. Anthony Michael D'Agostino has a PhD in English literature focusing on the Victorian novel and comic studies. When he isn't teaching writing, queer literature, and feminist theory at Fordham University, he serves as a private online tutor and executive functioning coach specializing in helping students with ADHD get the most out of college. And this summer, he will be dropping his own podcast, Theory of X, which will discuss some of our favorite comic books storylines and how they can help us understand big theoretical ideas like feminism, capitalism, or whatever, leaving it open. So Tony, I want to talk about your research, definitely, which is very relevant to a lot of the stuff that we love talking about on this podcast. But let's do let's do the important, important personal information first. Tell us your comics origin story. When did you first fall in love with, with this genre, with this medium? That's a great question. I think I, it was in first grade. They brought in Dare to keep me off drugs. Ooh. And, 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 but, and I don't, I don't, I, that didn't take, but they did, yeah. they did offer me a comic book featuring on the cover, Power Man, Luke Cage, Storm and Spider-Man. 
And I didn't have a lot of time for Spider-Man. However, I knew that I wanted Luke Cage to be my dad and I wanted Storm to be my best friend. (laughs) And I had to, but when I read it, I was like unsettled. Like they were, like it was wrong. And so then I used to hang out with my grandfather on the weekends and we used to, we used to go to the movies together and then he would buy me like a Nintendo, like video game or something, like basically spoiling me. And then one day I was like, no more Nintendo games. Let's go to the comic book store. Oh. And like, so like every weekend was me hanging out at my grandpa's house, reading comic books and eating Chinese food. And that was like the happiest time of my life. Aww. Yeah. I love that. That's I great. I, I really thought you were going to tell a story about how your grandfather was, was smokescreen, the villain from that book. Uh, but, oh my God. <laughs> but, 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 but no, this was just, this was just nice and sweet. I was just like, Oh my God. He's read the, he's read the, the Spider-Man anti-drug comic. Oh yeah. my, and he's going to do a really clever. <laughs> it turns out. Um, Smokescreen was a wild Canadian terrorist who attacked New York this week. And I've been fighting him with all my might. Believe you me. Um, Yes, Smokescreen, thank you. I feel so seen already. Thank you. Um, There's a lot of really obscure comic book knowledge in my head. I love it. And I'll, and I'll never, you know, when uh, like when you start talking about it, I'm like, oh my god, he's right. When am I ever going to be able to use this fact ever again in my life? No, okay, yes, like, yes, <laughs> that was golden. That was golden. That was golden. Yeah. So that's my origin story. <laughs> you have found your people clearly. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me ask you a little bit about your specific affection for X Men. I mean, you're getting this like X Men themed podcast going. You clearly have a ton of affection for the franchise. I believe when we were talking before the pod, you described Excalibur as your Bible. Oh my God! Yeah. So yeah, tell me a little bit about it. Where does your particular affection from this franchise stem from? Can I can I start with a confession? Of course. Um, my first comics love was the Avengers and Quasar. Mm. Like Ooh, anything, Mark, anything, Mark Grunewald. Grunewald. Yeah, like and I, I'm still obsessed with him. I'm still obsessed with him. He's still my favorite. He's still he's so special. Uh, I have some of his ashes in my house. As do <laughs> I in the trade paperback because his ashes were mixed into the ink for the TPB of Squadron it's, Supreme, and not it's not only like that. Wow. Not yeah. only that, but also his his wife, when she does comic book signings, which is rare because she was not a comic book professional. She was just married to one. She has a ink stamp that she of his signature that she uses ink made from the ashes of Mark Grunewald. So I have a Captain America poster with Grunewald's signature stamped by his wife that includes his ashes in, in my living room. <laughs> Why do you? Keep I'm a weird. Winning? I'm a. Why I'm a weird fan. <laughs> I'm. So, oh no no! I just want to. No no this, no! this is this is me wanting to share with and impress you. This is not a win. Right. Because oh, <laughs> again, no, no, when else am I going to bring this up? Yeah, yeah. It's not like I haven't maybe kissed my copy of Squadron Supreme. It's not like I don't <laughs> oh, find so all of this incredibly romantic and kind of erotic. The fact that he put himself into his fucking work. Like I'm me just too. Like, fanning myself. I'm fanning myself. Um, I love that man. So anyway. <laughs> But then, um, so then I sort of like cheated on him with um, when the Dark Phoenix saga came out in trade paperback in the late 80s, right? And also from the Ashes and Asgardian Wars. 
And I just read those. They were like, I, I, they were like my teddy bear. Like I brought them places. Like my, (laughs) my parents, if my parents, if we were going out with our family to dinner, like they would be under my seat at the steakhouse. Like it was like weird. It was like, they were my, I mean, for Papa Chris, like my fetish objects, right? I loved them. And I have just been sort of following them my whole life and they're like a part of me they're a part of me so what are kind of some of the themes and elements of this franchise that really appeals to you i mean you've done some great academic work on x-men as well we're just talking off mic i reread your wonderful piece on queer allegories and rogue that appeared in the queer about comics special issue of american literature we'll definitely link that in the episode but yeah i mean i'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about some of the themes that kind of you end up pulling from this franchise in your academic work well i kind of want to can i be real like I think at the age of nine, I think that I wanted the colors were crazy. Like to me, like I loved the colors and the, and Burns pencils on, Mm. there was a very visceral reaction to the images, right? Like I was really into rainbow bright as like, (laughs) like before that, like, you know what I'm saying? Like pre-literacy days. Mm -hmm. And so the idea, the, the colors themselves, like sort of spoke to my little gay soul. And then the themes would come in and I literally do not know whether I was this queer sadomasochist personality <laughs> before Papa Chris found me or he if he molded me through the texts. And I don't fucking care. Like, I'm good. Chicken like, and egg question. Way. Yep. Yeah, chicken and egg question, right? Like, there's a whole school of, like, the text forms you, right? But I think that it comes down to the idea that the X-Men build relationships and affinities with one another that are dangerous, right? It's not always cute, right? When Doug, like, like so for instance, when Doug and Warlock um, merge with one another, right? They're going to have like an ecstatic empowerment moment, but oops, like Doug might be getting HIV after. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, or like techno virus yeah. HIV yeah. or whatever. And from a really young age, I always wanted to have relationships that made me feel like more than myself, And gave me access to like different knowledge, different power, different sensation or feeling. Um, So like to boil that down, like when I saw Rogue kissing boys and taking their powers, I was like, I'm all in. That was all I wanted in life. Well, yeah, I mean, it's that. a great, it's a great piece, and I mean, I kind of want you to unpack that a little bit more. But people should go and read the piece because it's excellent. But um, <laughs> I don't know. Let me let me ask you a little bit. Maybe we can get into it a little bit more by having you talk about Excalibur specifically, because I think you specifically said that like the Claremont Davis Excalibur. Oh my like, god! Very very dear to your heart. So what makes this particular series stand out to you? What makes it so dear to your heart? Well, I think that as an early reader of Dark Phoenix saga which like i'm still working with now which is weird is that to see rachel Mm. come into the phoenix and sort of understand it and reinterpret it as not reinterpret but re re um inhabit it as like a positive force that she understands needs to be leavened with like understanding and control um that she derives from her experiences of trauma like just seeing that even as a kid i understood that that Rachel was figuring something out about power and about her relationships with Kitty and Megan, right? So like when Alan Davis takes the baton and he brilliantly completes and sort of fulfills everything that Cece puts down, but with his own spin, 
Megan wants to find herself and she has to separate herself from her codependent abusive boyfriend. And Rachel's there for her. She's like, I'm going to go and help you out. We're going to go find yourself, like who you are. And Rachel thinks she's helping Megan. But Rachel, in order to do that, has to like let go of her power a little bit. She lets the phoenix go dormant. Mm -hmm. And in that moment or in that experience, her memories start healing. And as a kid, I just thought that was interesting. But as someone now who is, you know, I'm a 40-year-old person who lived through COVID, who's lost friends. And a lot of my friends have been telling me, like, you have to slow down. You have to rest. You have to deal with stuff. And I didn't want to listen. And then I recently reread those issues. And I had known all along that, like, in order for me to get over some stuff that happened to me, I'm going to need to, like, give up my power position and, like, let myself heal. And to know that those artists gave me something that keeps returning and reteaching me lessons throughout my entire friggin' life is amazing and beautiful. So that's why Excalibur is my Bible. Oh my goodness, that is beautiful. I've thought so much about, I think the first episode that we had Nola Fowl on, and she mm -hmm. said something about, we were talking about Nightcrawler and trauma and, and disability a little bit. And she said something about how Kurt just keeps moving. And that's something that defines mm -hmm. sort of his approach to yes. trauma and yeah. disability and everything. And the character has been so important to me, like throughout <laughs> going through some horrible stuff the last three years. And that just really, really resonated with me. And it just really reminded me a lot of what you're saying in terms of rediscovering some of these things to, you know, going back to move forward. You know what I mean? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yes. Oh, that's wonderful. Oh, God, I could keep talking about this stuff all day, but we got to talk about this specific comic. And I really want to hear your thoughts about it. Uh, I know that I know that you have a take on it that you want to get into and i want to let you get into that so we'll give you lots of time um so let's do the issue summary and we'll come right back to you for your first impressions so i know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod if you suddenly started dressing like a euro trash swashbuckler we definitely wouldn't make fun of you but we would at least acknowledge your fabulousness unlike a certain elf's friends in this issue just to prove how deeply supportive we are here's that plot summary excalibur number 97 opens with a kitchen scene wherein pete wisdom is telling the team about his history with the erstwhile mysterious black air operative named Scratch. Pete admits he's killed lots of people, but he killed killers. Scratch killed everyone. In response to Scratch's ruthlessness, Pete gave him a taste of his own. Now, knowing he's responsible for the kidnapping of Douglock and a bunch else besides, he says he wishes he'd killed him. Putting two and two together with the help of stolen files and Megan's new literacy, they realize the Hellfire Club is working with Black Air. Meanwhile, in London, Brian Braddock and the Hellfire member Scribe watch a pillar of fire appear in the middle of the city before quickly disappearing. Scribe says the Hellfire Club's magician, the Red Queen, aka Margali Sardos, as we know, is testing her powers with the aid of an arcane power source underneath London. Brian calls Excalibur and tells them the time has come to move against the Hellfire Club. Elsewhere, the Hellfire Club's royalty prepares to enact their plan. They meet with representatives of Black Air and reveal that their link to the power source is Douglock's severed head. Overnight, in their respective locales, Brian and Excalibur plan their assault on the Hellfire Club. During the night, the Black Queen, aka Emma Steed, I see what you did there, is visited by Onslaught <laughs> in her quarters. Onslaught asks if she's ready. She says no, but it doesn't matter. There is no stopping Onslaught, as the relentless marketing of that event confirms. In the epic conclusion, <laughs> the Red Queen finally officially reveals herself as Margali. She says she's already used the Soul Sword to kill the other magicians ahead of her on the Winding Way and confirms that she now plans to use Douglock's head as a link to an even greater source of power. But when she touches Douglock's head, she finds she can't control the power. Fires begin appearing all over London and hate-filled riots break out as a long-buried demon is freed from confinement 
monument towering over a burning London. Okay, Tony, I'm pretty sure you've read this comic before, but I know you had some new feelings about it that came up as you were rereading it and considering it in context. So so hit me with it. What are you particularly <laughs> eager to talk about? I am particularly eager to talk about how this comic book doesn't make a lick of sense. <laughs> I am, um, Thank you. I am, I am eager to talk about that at best charitably, this is sort of like a transitional issue that's supposed yeah. to lead up to the crescendo of 100. But in that blank space, right, or in that sort of like loosening of artistic intensity, Ellis fails to deliver like any compelling narrative or thematic construction. And what we get out of this issue specifically is like a crass narcissistic projection Right? Because this time I really read this one issue while making the mistake of reading the testimonies of some of the women who were in unhealthy relationships with him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think that whatever we, whatever passes for a narrative structure in this comic book is actually reflective of his relate of Ellis's sort of narcissistic manipulation of people generally, women in particular, and perhaps the reader. Do, oh wait, should, I talked a lot. Should I should I slow down? No, I want I want to <laughs> no, hear this good. take. I was okay. going to ask you to elaborate, so please continue. Oh, I'm ready. So anyway, so it, <laughs> the book opens up with, you know, Pete Wisdom talking, right? And that's basically the book. Pete Wisdom, just yada, 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 right? And mm -hmm. he is trying to explain to the rest of Excalibur who Scratch is, right? And Scratch, as you've, as you've pointed out, is just this other agent of Black Air, but Pete Wisdom and Scratch are both narcissistic projections of Ellis himself. Mm. Um, so he, so then Pete Wisdom launches into this story. And the story is that he got into a fight with Scratch for being such a bastard, for killing people. And then they got into a fight at the office. And he, like, mic drops, basically. That mm. it doesn't make sense, which is to say he is a um, serial killing um, secret agent who lies. He And he says the unbelievable idea that everyone Pete Wisdom killed was deserved it. And everyone <laughs> that Scratch killed mm -hmm. didn't deserve it. Right? Mm -hmm. There's like this weird binary logic that is completely unbiable if you have like a brain attached <laughs> to your eyes. <laughs> right? Like nobody... Do you believe, anybody believe? No, no. And um, and then, but what's interesting is that he tells this story that can only be, you know, a cool story bro moment. Because he's basically telling a room full of superheroes who have spent most of their lives beating the shit out of bad people that he beat the shit out of this one bad person for no reason other than to edgelord himself and project right <laughs> manipulating them he's manipulating them but narratively speaking like scratch and pete wisdom are the same person and so what happens is is that once pete is done telling this like really self-aggrandizing nonsense story <laughs> kitty pride puts her hand on his shoulder and goes you scare me sometimes <laughs> um 
here's the thing. One, this is on Ellis's part, like an embarrassing mischaracterization because this not a girl, like, like not a girl yet, not a woman, not yet a woman has literally fought the brood like by herself at some points Mm -hmm. um, and has been trained by one of the most lethal and scary killers on earth, Wolverine. Um, by like three of the most lethal and scary killers. Also yeah. Ogan. Also, also yeah. well, no, Nick Fury hasn't happened yet, but like, you right. know. Oh, yes, yes. She's a murderer. But, and literally, murderer. O- yeah, and literally <laughs> Ogan was inside of her. Like, yes. and also, and but also I think that really, what really takes the cake is that like she survived the mutant massacre. <laughs> like, I've seen mass murder. Like, there's no way that this girl is that impressed. So when I read this, in order to do, like, a reparative reading, I have to tap all of the times that I acted impressed by an edgelord man. Because, because, like, I was, you know, right? Just, like, playing along, right? But the script is really creepy because she says, you scare me sometimes. And then he says, I scare myself sometimes, Kitty. And it's the narcissistic sort of echoing that he tells a bullshit story to get the reaction of of both fear and respect, right? Mm -hmm. He's both pitiable and powerful that he wants from a woman. He gets the reaction that he wants from her. And then he literally echoes it back to like confirm it. And this is basically what he would do over email, like what Warren Ellis would do over emails with women, right? He would talk about his self-loathing, right? And then he would he would leaven his self-loathing with his with his career like um accomplishments and power and what he could do for them, right? So he always wanted to be both adored and awe-inspiring right? But pitiable and powerful. And that is exactly what Pete Wisdom is doing on the fucking page. That's a compelling reading. That's a compelling reading. I do not. And I'm not here for it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. yeah. But notice how what is also really odd is that the rest of the story, all of the other characters either echo him or fall silent. So Captain Britain Brian, he's just like futzing around his hotel room. Like he's touching his mask. He's looking out the window at the flames, which like I literally did yesterday. P.S. But he's not saying or doing anything. And also, you know, Megan just asks what a moment means, which is like legit. She's newly literate. She has not gone to law school. But it's almost as if all of the other characters are there to confirm his lovability and agency, right? Mm -hmm. And have little else to add themselves. And that sort of reflects the way that Ellis, in some of these email relationships he's had with women, he would make himself increasingly important to them. Like he would say how he, he would be useful to them. He would post their stories. He'd give them advice and he would downplay other people in their lives to create like a narcissistic bubble in the email chain. Right. And he would make like they were the only one. And then he would do that with other girls at the same time. And that is literally the narrative structure of this issue. It's a narcissistic bubble where only Peter is really talking. Only Peter is really figuring things out. And he's seducing the rest of Excalibur, the reader maybe, but the rest of Excalibur becomes an extension of his ego. Yeah. I mean, I think that that's fair. And I mean, 
it jives with a lot of the stuff we have been talking about with Pete Wisdom. I mean, even in some of the combos we've had, like talking about how Pete Wisdom was a popular character with a lot of female readers from that era. And that is an interesting element of this character. And yet we also talked about the manipulativeness of that, right? Like, I mean, the pitiableness of him and how manipulative that is and how there's that like fixing a bad man narrative that comes along with it. And I I think that you just did a pretty convincing indictment of that. the way it relates to the real world context. Like I had a lot of practice with like actual men, right? I like, do you know what I'm saying? I've been living my life for this podcast, right? Like to say, fuck you, Warren Ellis. You're not going to get the wool over my eyes. Fair. Yeah. Very fair. What do you guys, I, yeah. did you guys, did you guys enjoy this issue? Well, I'll pick up, yeah, I'll pick up some first impressions from Andrew and Mav. I mean, Mav, how are you feeling about it? I was worried I was going to come in here because like I was mediocre to slightly high on last issue and this issue is dumb but i and i was like oh and i was like i'm gonna go on today and and i'm gonna have to like defend why i do not like this comic it on top of everything tony just said nothing really happens this is pointless it's it, it, it is an issue that doesn't mean to exist you know we've just done a plot summary and i don't remember it <laughs> It is wholly irrelevant. You can skip it and go from 98 to 100 and you'd probably be fine. And it has all the problems that are inherent in the Pete Wisdom masturbatory fantasy. Um, my my big complaint was even if you take Pete at face at at face value, if you if you said I'm very I'm very afraid of myself. I have you know I've I almost I I would have killed him. Okay, if Kitty is a regular girl. This is a red flag and you should run. Or you accept that Kitty is a, you know, ninja, as Tony did, in which case she's not impressed. Either way, Pete is wrong here. Like, he's either just like stupid and he's less impressive than, like, every... Because, again, Kitty's best friend is a 150-year-old murdering lunatic, right? Like, that's... Like, <laughs> like she loves she loves Wolverine, and so this should not be scaring her. You're right. But if Pete's wisdom is trying to like be the brooding bad guy and scare her and she, you know, would be scared by it, then you should run because frankly, however you feel about spies, you are in a spy organization and a guy who is one of your colleagues is employed by the spy organization to go kill people. So, you know, you're wrong. Pete Wisdom's wrong. And that's the inciting incident of this. Like, I, I don't really care about this plot line, but if you're going to force me to to care about the plot line and, and care about Scratch, in this encounter, Scratch is 100% in the right and Pete Wisdom is 100% wow. in the wrong. Well, I mean, like, if I'm, if I'm, I mean, I'm, I've, I've had jobs where I have disagreements with, with coworkers and if I've done my job, I've done the thing that we were paid to do and I walk in the door and I say, hey, Pete, and then he just jumps on me and starts trying to beat me to death. He's wrong. Like Scratch's job is to go do these murder missions. That's his job. Well, I mean, he did murder a lot of excess people that he didn't have to murder. So there is that grain. According of to Pete Wisdom. I mean, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, yes, I mean, I'm not I'm not defending Scratch. I, I don't like either of these characters. But like it's just the way the story's even told, I'm just like, yeah, you're you're just positioning yourself as the good guy, but it's not in any meaningful, interesting way. You yeah, work yeah, yeah, for yeah. a spy organization called Black Air. <laughs> like that's know, right? like, 
like let's not delude ourselves about what you know what, what side of the universe we're on here you're you know you're not one of the i mean you might be doing what's right arguably you could argue that it's a necessary but you're not one of the good guys right it's it's one of those things where like when batman says we don't kill and then just like beats people within an edge of their life and gives them brain damage. And it's just like, yeah, you just put that guy in traction. So great that you're not murdering people, you know, <laughs> like it, it's one of those things. It, it doesn't make sense if you scrutinize it for more than two seconds. And the difference between Batman and Pete wisdom is Batman's more interesting. So. <laughs> I think that there's, there's something, there's something about like edgelord masculinity that you're, that, that these type of dudes are always, and I'm really talking about Warren Ellis, are always manufacturing a bully that mm-hmm. that mirrors their own desire for aggression, mm-hmm. that they can take their aggression mm-hmm. out on, right? But what's really clear is that Wisdom and Scratch are not different at all. It's just Pete's narcissism that, allow, that makes Scratch the evil other that is going mm-hmm. to justify his edgelord violence, right? It's the need for, it's the aggression and the need for violence that comes first. The ethics of like what they do is completely contrived by Pete and Will Mm -hmm. Warren and like a bunch of other dudes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Andrew, what were your thoughts about it? I mean, I know that you've had trouble separating the artist from the work a lot of the times when we've been reading the Pete Wisdom storylines. No, you're not a fan. So I'm sure you have thoughts on it too. No. I, so I, I want to say that I, I like what Ellis is trying to do here in creating this pause before the battle to build mm-hmm. tension and conflict. Like he, he's trying to do his like first half of Fate of the Phoenix here uh, mm-hmm. to use the Dark Phoenix reference, which is yeah, like like, like that's a good setup. This one's mm-hmm. not quite working for me, but it's got some good pieces to it, and I like the idea that we are trying to progress Pete's character a little bit by showing him, um, you know, wanting to be a team player and wanting to evolve. Again, as as Tony mentioned, it's just Ellis's author insert character is really torpedoing this uh, and making it kind of weird and uncomfortable. And then he's trying to do like that um, deep state X-Files kind of thing that he likes to do. But again, the, the intelligence of the deep state of the politics is not, sufficient enough to make that interesting in my eyes like there's the opening scene where um uh, they find out that a private interest group is funneling money towards the government in return for favorable legislation and they're like this is the smoking gun no one will believe this ever happens in britain i know and like that's that's too adorable to be in a (laughs) story that wants to explore politics the way that i think ellis really does uh, in some of his later works i would argue kind of kind of get much closer to that so yes there's pieces here i like it's not working it's It's also giggle worthy oh yeah definitely naive but it's also giggle worthy in that is that ellis has pete wisdom go through all of these moves like all of this sleuthing to discover the basic premise of the hellfire club that we already know from (laughs) jump which is that they control things and that right like the new york hellfire club is just like rolling their eyes like you know what i'm saying like project wide awake like that was us right like stark international like defense contract that was us that is the point of the hellfire club is that they do have control right so the mystery is kind of like a revealing of what we heard what any x-men reader would have thought in from the beginning right i am shocked shocked that gambling is occurring (laughs) in this establishment yeah exactly sometimes you scare me right it's that same like humoring the dude like it's like Mm -hmm. we have to humor ellis like oh wow what a reveal 
Well, it did occur to me that element was present in both what we have with Pete in this issue and what we have with Brian, because Brian, you know, Brian's not always the smartest, okay? We've, like, clowned on him before for being naive mm-hmm. and all of this stuff, but I feel like he's even more naive than I find believable in terms of his exchanges with the Hellfire Club, because, again, he must surely know what they do, and yet he seems so in the dark and so confused and so... I don't know. Like, I like, in theory, what he's doing here about having Brian contemplate his role and does he want to be a superhero or not, but then that hasn't been built up effectively. So while I think a number of the sort of caption boxes going through Brian's thought process are effective, they don't sound like Brian to me. And so I had issues with that as well in terms of, you know, a lot of the characters have to be more naive than I think that they should be in order to make this not very conspiratorial conspiracy work. Mm -hmm. And that was frustrating. And yeah, I've got a lot of issues with the Margali reveal too, which I think that we'll get to. But um, well, I mean, yeah, I mean, we could talk about that now. I'm not sure what the most effective thing to talk I'm about. I'm sorry, is Margali in this book? Is that who that is? That yeah. who that is? is that what you're talking oh, about? Oh, she I, is. I, I, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, I know, but like, oh, right. I, don't, yes. I don't recognize the visuals of this character or the, or, or the motivation or the characterization. I am familiar with the term winding way. Okay, so I guess that's who it is. Okay, well, let's talk. Yeah. Let's talk about it then, because I think that that's another issue with characterization in this book. And I mean, I don't know how much I want to link that back to our previous conversation about Ellis, but still, this is a strange characterization of Margali, and partly there's been this like slow burn of the reveal of who the members of the London Hellfire Club are that really doesn't work because her visualization is completely different than any visualization we've had in the past. I don't even know what specific moment the comics want me to realize it's her. Like there should be some sort of striking reveal. Yeah, I know, but it's like, there's (laughs) no indication in the art that this is a striking reveal. You can't figure it out. I know, I know. But also on the... On the plot level, Ellis is also confused about how he wants that to work. Because in this issue, she's going to imply that the magical energy from the Winding Way sort of undid a lot of the damage to her body that early poverty did, like in food scarcity, right? Mm -hmm. So she looks unrecognizable because uh, basically she got privilege. Um, Mm -hmm. And I want to talk about that a little but then in the next issue, I'm so, am I allowed to do that? Am I allowed to? Yes, that's okay. In the next issue, he'll like forget. And Amanda Sefton will be like, it was my mom in a new body, right? And because like they're magic people, third eye or whatever, like she can recognize her. But Ellis himself doesn't know in terms of like her, like about about like what body is going on, like what body Margali has or whatever, right? He doesn't, he's, he doesn't care. Yeah. And I mean, I think that you could do that again, if you sort of built it up and there was a reveal and it was like, oh, it was Margali, but it's so undersold and, and, and anticlimactic. Like I remember the first time I read this story arc and feeling like, did I miss issues? Because it feels like we should have had these members of the Hellfire Club sort of introduced with some context that would make us understand the relationships or like have the shocking reveals of who they are make more sense. And it's surprisingly missing. Like, I think Ellis is a better writer than what we get here. And I actually find the whiffing on that quite confusing because it's a classic like reveal of a familiar character. I mean, you know, it's like pulling off the mask and Green Goblin is an Osborne. Like, it's not hard. <laughs> and, like, it's surprising to see him whiff on that so badly. Can we just, like, get... Where is the reveal supposed to be? I know. Um, I think I think I know where it is, 
right? But I for, I've kind of forgotten. It's the page with the soul sword image where she uses her own name. Yeah, well, that's the thing. I don't think it's I. I don't think we're supposed to find it weird. I think we're supposed to be like, oh, okay, that's Margulizados. But um, my 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 problem with it is there's nothing about this I care about. Margulie in the context of Excalibur, is already only a character who barely matters, right? She's been underserved the entire time, and now she's seducing this person who I also don't recognize, so am I supposed to feel sorry for him? Because I don't care. I'm like, oh, okay, great. Duke got to kiss a hot babe. I think I'm supposed to feel bad for him, but I'm not sure. Is he on her side now? Because he's got got that sword pulling, but it more looks like he's about to try and kill. I mean, I know he's supposed to be, she's supposed to be seducing him into being her minion, but it more looks like he's about to try and kill her, and then he's just not on the next page, so it doesn't matter. (laughs) Like, like nothing of it matters. Even in the the last image you see here is she's got, like, this body horror image where she's got the fangs inside of her eyes, except for that doesn't quite scan the way it's Supposed to like it just looks like she has weird eyes not like she has casey jones's artwork it's very cute i love his work um but the the representation doesn't horrify me the way i think it's supposed to it's just like oh, that's kind of weird it does th- nothing about this works for me i think that the eyes are the corinthian right from sandman right yeah, so exactly what it is. so can i ooh, can i like flex against that i think that the margali <laughs> reveal is the only thing I care about. Okay. Because it threads the needle from my own, the only, not that that's unfair, but one of the better Ellis arcs, which is the Soul Sword trilogy, right? I think that what he's trying to do, he's trying to create like a larger structure that's supposed to snap into place at this moment. He just fumbles it narratively. But that makes me, I sort of love Margali. I think that she's like one of those, like, she's like a white monster mother from like a Toni Morrison novel. She's like a low rent, affordable Celine, right? That you can get on discount. Like I'm always here for her. And so I think that structurally I see what he's doing. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. But the- Maybe it's just, it's just so underserved that I can't, like, like there's not enough here for me to say you're wrong either. <laughs> you know, right. like, Either way, sure. You know, it's just it's it's three pages where and it, it just didn't come together enough for me. Can I, I, I can I so Margali really got to me this time. Can mm-hmm. I tell you why? Sure. When she says she's holding Douglock's head, right? Like like the techno fetish object that he is for her. And she's speaking to the adolescent boy, and she says, I was never a pretty girl. Surface folk rarely ate well in my day, and it showed on me. So she's speaking to the male gaze about how the way that her poverty and the po- her poverty affected her body and her worthiness for love and attraction. And I think that that is something that Ellis mistakenly, like, like by accident, is getting into in the larger Hellfire Club that the way that Morrison, Fraction, and later Brubaker are going to flesh out Emma Frost's rise to the Hellfire Club by revealing that she wasn't that cute as a kid. and But being not cute as a kid teaches you how valuable looks are for social, for social negotiation, but also worthiness of love, right? It's a like Jane Eyre, right? When Jane Eyre says, like, I'm just not cute, so people don't like me as much, right? Sorry, I'm obsessed with Bronte the way I'm obsessed with, with Claremont. <laughs> Um, so, well, because they, 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 in my book, I'm arguing that they, that Dark Phoenix Saga is Jane Eyre. Um, oh. and oh. 
yeah. And so that's my idea now. Um, don't don't publish. Okay. So um, <laughs> right. You know, do you, do you, do you, how many times have academics done that? And I've been like, bro, like do your thing. Oh, but anyway, Magali. And then she says, but in this last while, oh, I've gorged. And then she talks about like getting ahead on the winding way. And she goes, as I activate the link, I become great. You know what they'll say, little boy? Who cares what Margali Sardis looks like? That's what they'll say. And what Ellis has done is he's sort of talked about the relationship between social power, the ability to be loved, and aesthetics, and the way that women have to negotiate that at all times, right? And how Margali is sort of both inhabiting that leaning into the relationship between sex attractiveness and power but she's also defying it she wants to break that system right from the inside she wants to take the the adolescent boy and said you're not even gonna fucking care what i look like once i'm done you're going to respect me in a way that you can't like you can you never thought you could respect me and that is incredibly powerful but can I just like turn the screw? Yeah, I've got, I've got a counterpoint to it too, but you go ahead first. Oh, no, that's great. No, that's great. But I just, uh, I just want to turn the screw. But the thing is, is that I don't trust Ellis. And what mm. I see here is that when El- in Ellis in a lot of his emails, one of the ways that he would hook women was like appealing to their own artistic ambition and saying how how great their work was. He, he also featured a lot of them. On, or some of them at least, on his website. And so he appealed to the, the women that he found pretty or attractive. He appealed to their will or their desire or their ambition for greatness, right? So for Ellis, he sees women as like the as a, as a sort of admixture of both of those elements, and he works backwards. And he says, like, I'm going to offer you greatness, right? And you're going to give me your attractiveness. But the thing is, the reason why Ellis has to do that is that he actually is jealous of the girls that he's attracted to. He's a je- he's jealous of their sexual power over him. He wants, and he wants to sort of like manipulate and f- refunnel that because it's him who wants to tell the world that he's going to be great, which he eventually does with Stormwatch, Black Authority, and Planetary, right? And he's literally telling the world, and he's he's like low-key telling these girls, is that you're not going to care what Warren Ellis looked like, right? Because I'm going to be great. And so in a way, it's the way in which men both desire but secretly identify with the women mm, yeah. that, they are, that they want to take advantage of. And this sort of jealousy, or just like, and also, like, this need to feel lovable and attractive, right? So Margali, in, a, in this other way, becomes just another narcissistic projection. Yeah, I think that that speaks, that speaks to my criticism of it, because this isn't Margali. You know, like, I mean, <laughs> Margali is really worried about her power making her ugly. Like, literally the first time she appeared in comics, she appeared as a green-skinned woman. <laughs> with yeah. And it's like, oh... <laughs> Okay, like that was a big thing for her. And then there's been multiple other comics in which one of the central things she taught Nightcrawler was not to be focused on being judged for your appearance. So this is a complete inversion of so much that we know about Margali, like to just go to this stereotypical well of female villainy of like, I'm evil because I wasn't pretty. And it's like, okay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, your reading of it as a narcissistic projection kind of speaks to my critique there, right? Because he's doing what he wants with the character 
character regardless of who she's previously been and again this is a huge problem mm-hmm. with margali in general she's a different character every time she shows up but still the idea that not yeah, she even cares the about writer. physical attractiveness <laughs> yeah. like again when like her most dominant appearance is as like a green-skinned lady with horns is mm-hmm. sort of like <laughs> yes. okay i don't think right. she had an issue with that in the past but no in fact she was willing to she was willing to trade her looks for greater and greater power in previous mm-hmm. issues so you know mm-hmm. <laughs> which i which i love her for i love her yeah. for that right i mean i don't know andrea did you have did you have thoughts about this latest villain turn for margali or have we have we exhausted the topic no i think i'm in agreement I, I, again for me part of the the whiff uh, as anna called it is, is just that margali was kind of simmering in the background to be an important character in excalibur and like amanda's not even here in this issue nope yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not, it, it seems like here oh so frustrating yeah i'm looking at the at margali's like teeth eyes looking at it now it's ellis wanting to subsume like a neil gaiman moment right like his (laughs) he wants to subsume neil gaiman's greatness which i think that most of the time his school of writing a writer like him and morrison like they're more after alan moore's greatness (laughs) right so because like the rest of the text when we talk about are we going to talk about evil a little bit because this this view the view of evil that ellis is looking at or or giving in this text is straight from alan moore's from hell right yeah let's talk Um, about that a little bit because i wanted to talk about this issue is trying to go for a political allegory in terms of its presentation of layers of evil like both on the plot level and on a literal level like there is this demon under the layers of london that rises back to the surface to turn londoners against each other so it is this like return of the repressed thing and then it jives with all the different layers of evil that is like the spy organization and the government and the hellfire club and private industry so yeah if you've got thoughts about about that thematization tony i'm happy to chat about it it's almost like demonic or metaphysical evil like the big red horned demon like really really hitting you over the head feeds on but then in turn catalyzes Mm -hmm. um quote thin echoes of london murder london corruption and london london hatred unquote and so it it's kind of like produces social ills his idea of evil is culturally and geographically specific. This is supposed to be a story about London. And so, uh, like I said, like it's sort of channeling Alan Moore's From Hell, which was a graphic novel that almost had an anthropological focus and intensity. Um, yeah. And it sort of explores the story of Jack the Ripper as a nexus for a bunch of London's political, cultural, and social intensities or um, conflicts. And one of the things about From Hell is that it's the story is almost outmatched by the footnotes, the historical and cultural footnotes that Moore does. So it's, again, it's like sort of Ellis sort of scraping for the greatness of other writers here. When, he, when he's not really in his greatness, he really has not become the writer that he's going to be even for Stormwatch. Yeah. But what's interesting here is I want to say like, Warren, this story has never been about London. We don't have characters from London. We don't have mm. that. We don't have Excalibur relocating to London and sort of experiencing the metro cosmopolitan culture there. But this is still a this is still a Muir Island team. So this these quotes about London evil are very unearned for me thematically. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, like, what the heck is Excalibur's connection to London? I mean, Brian has a connection to London. He's always had his London flat, and he's got some connection to London high society, but none of 
the other characters on the team do. So, right. and again, it's just, it's just odd. Like, I don't know. Well, Pete has that connection too. So I guess there's that. And since Pete is so central in this issue, you could argue that. But again, that's another instance of it displacing the rest of the team, right? I mean, this is, as Andrew was saying, this is an issue with the evil of Margali Sardos at the center of it. And Kurt and Amanda are barely in the issue. Amanda's not in the issue and Kurt barely is. And you're just like, okay, but that's their villain. It's their mom. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there'll be there'll be more about it in the subsequent issues, but it is it is odd that that is just sidelined here. Anyway, just odd pacing choices, I guess. And the demon under London is so underwhelming. Um, <laughs> yeah, it reminds sure. me, like, it's like, I'm a big muscular um, mm-hmm. demon with horns. And it it reminded me of season eight, season four, I think, of Angel. Isn't that the Ilyana season? Yes, 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 yes. Good one. But they, <laughs> so they call down the beast, right? Or the, mm-hmm. the big bad calls down the beast. The, the big bad is really nebulous at this point. And the beast looks like this demon. It's almost like too stereotypical. Like, I'm the devil. And the reveal is, is that he's an idiot. He's just yeah. a henchman. And that, like, real evil is actually going, is actually in the in the process of, of assuming a form that all of them are going to fall in love with, mm-hmm. right? Of Jasmine. And it's sort of like Warren Ellis sort of falls into, like, he's the butt of Whedon and company's joke here. Like, no, that's not evil. Like, what, did Dormammu not want to show up? Like, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? Is Mephisto busy? Like, this is, <laughs> this is like the most uninteresting demon below London ever. Yeah, yeah. And they try to, the caption boxes try to pass it off as like, well, this is just a representation of the evil and it goes back underground. I'm like, I know, but you just drew a devil though. So it's not like... I'm so... I'm I'm like, try harder. Try harder. Um, (laughs) Do you know what I'm saying? Like, also, there's an odd... Is this being picky? Is that there's an odd repetitious dissonance between the red devil and the way that Onslaught is colored right so like they're both big red devils that you're just like ugh. it's called creativity people it's called you know some design sensibility bring it to the comic book to the visual medium there's not even purple like onslaught is colored without his characteristic magneto purple which is like miss fire oh my god can we talk can we talk about this black (laughs) queen and how like that the black queen is damask from excalibur in age of apocalypse I mean, right? we famously haven't read Excalibur. Well, Damask was this really quite in- brilliant invention for AOA. It was like a mutant that you hadn't seen in C- 616 because of the reshuffling. You didn't know where she was, mm-hmm. right? Ellis just sort of creates her for AOA, sort of like the like the Bedlam Brothers, right? And then later on, they're revealed like where they are in 616. And she is truly scary. She is truly sadistic. And here she's just, you know, I'm just, she's just a girl who can't sleep, right? She's <laughs> up in bed. She's reading, oh my God, and I'm quoting an obscure tome about Spanish torture. What? What? Like, do you mean the Spanish Inquisition? Like, what the, f- like, I'm sorry. You cannot write. Yeah. It's, it's a, and it's large. It's very long. So I she's smart. To, I didn't want to like do research. I didn't have Wikipedia yet. So it's an obscure tome. But it's an obscure it tome. She's the kind of girl who reads tomes, you guys. Um, so I was, and I'm so bored by her 
because Onslaught will show up and be like, soon now, there shall be a gathering. Are you ready? And then she looks up at him, like all doe-eyed, right? Like sort of like Kitty was and goes, no, but that doesn't matter, does it? Like, bitch, get your get your black queen up. <laughs> Do you know what I'm saying? Like, the, like the hell, no wonder everyone laughs at the London Hellfire Club. You are a <laughs> you you are like just limp. I was so, I was I was just rolling my eyes. I was just rolling my eyes. This is why Celine makes fun of you, right? Shit like yeah. this. Shit like this. And the captions try to justify it, like, oh, she just pretends to be afraid to humor him. And I'm like, okay. Yeah, that was weird. We'll talk more about this next next week, but I, I despise the Onslaught crossover. I, I don't care yeah. for it. It was dumb then. It's dumb now. If you're a fan of it, sorry, you you like a thing that's dumb. I like lots of things. That, <laughs> I like lots of things that are dumb. It's fine. That said, it, this is um the ongoing Excalibur problem since the days of Inferno. But since Warren Ellis does not, at least not yet, have the stroke at Marvel that Chris Claremont had when the Inferno crossover happened, he's got no control over Onslaught. It's clearly an editorial mandate that Onslaught has to cross over into this book in the greater context of the Onslaught story, which again, I don't like. But if I'm going to accept the Onslaught story, this doesn't matter. Onslaught does not care about Damask. Onslaught does not care about London. Like the moment that occurs here is only here so that there is an Onslaught moment in Excalibur for the forthcoming crossovers. That's why he's there. It, it's it's completely irrelevant. But that would not have stopped CC from right. turning Claremont something out. Right, right? Claremont would have the Inferno issue. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, yeah. But I mean, like the Inferno, the Inferno, the Goblin Princess issues yes. of Excalibur are great. Oh right, um, exactly. Yeah. Even even though it's outside, this is this is literally someone told him, "Look, you are going to use this character fitting in somewhere." So he does, and it doesn't work and it's dumb and like he, he's not gonna waste a crossover with one of the characters he cares about by making like he's not gonna have megan deal with with onslaught the way chris claremont did with megan and and, and um nastra in the inferno yes. crossover because yeah. that would force that would force future storylines based on it and he doesn't want to be have a part of this which again i get because onslaught was a stupid storyline <laughs> but even still like it, that's what this is it just it feels so forced and it, it reminds me of um my favorite crossover interaction ever is the first secret wars crossover with thor and every book that was going to be in secret wars and 12 issue limited series the first major marvel crossover um and i'm saying major because i yes i realized contest of champions was first um but the first major marvel crossover is secret wars maxi crossovers secret wars and everybody has to who's going to secret wars has a panel where they go and they investigate these these strange like spaceshipy things that were appearing in central park and then they all get teleported to battle world and then they have to come to they, they they do their battle world adventures and then the next issue they come back and time has passed and you don't know why but everything's different spider-man's got a black costume now the the, the fantastic four is missing the thing and, and she hawk is around peter is no longer in love with shadow cat and we don't know why she breaks up with uh, he, oh, um, he breaks up with kitty like but i mean there's <laughs> there's stuff that you will figure out throughout the course of secret war and that's like the hook of the crossover go read secret war so you can find out what's happening and that's what this is designed to do but 
instead it comes across with how Walt Simonson handled Secret Wars expertly in the pages of Thor. Walt Simonson has Thor fly down to the crossover spaceship that he's supposed to go for. And then um, Thor goes, let me go investigate that. And then he does. And then the next thing Thor does is, you know, it's a, is there's a caption that says something like sometime later and Thor is flying away from the little spaceship thing. And somebody asks him, what was all that about? And Thor says nothing of any consequence. It's (laughs) never mentioned again. Yeah, that's that's how this feels. It feels like you forced me to deal with it. So I'm going to deal with it. And then I'm never mentioning it again. Yeah. Are you ready? No, it doesn't really matter, does it? Nope. (laughs) You're you're right. It does not matter. But the thing is, is that as someone who loves these characters, right? Onslaught would traumatize Kitty or Kurt. Like knowing- Because it's Charles. Knowing that Charles is inside. Knowing that Charles is inside, sure. Yeah. And as a as someone who loves these characters, like this is something that need. Well, and in all fairness, I do believe that later on, like Kitty and Kurt will react to it. But in this, at this mode, if I'm reading this and I'm going, why is an onslaught behind the London Hellfire Club keeping Excalibur busy and unable to assist the X Men in New York? Like, why isn't he in? Like, why isn't he? Why isn't this? Why isn't there more thought put into this? Right, like anyone who yeah, loves these characters would like play this up. Tenuous connection, yeah. Like so, for instance, onslaught could be the shadow king for this story, like the like the sort of like hidden evil, and it would work so well because the fact that you know Excalibur is not on the phone, so many phone calls in this run, right? Is not <laughs> on the phone. Megan, Megan, her compa- her powers have completely changed. She's like mm-hmm. a, almost a half a new person, but she spends a lot of time answering phones. So, <laughs> right. Um, and I think that this is like a missed opportunity that just comes from Ellis not caring about X-Men. <laughs> Right? I, yeah. I don't know. Well, right? I mean, yeah, it's the challenge of it's the challenge of writing within continuity and writing for crossovers while trying to maintain the identity of your book, and it ain't easy. But I think. Oh, why maintain the identity of this boring ass book? Well, right. <laughs> I'm. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just saying that, like, that mm-hmm. I'm really disappointed in like the characterization of like half the team. Mm-hmm. Like, Doug Lock should be really important, and he spends most of the time going like. I am neither Doug nor Locke, right? Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. neither of those people, yet please call me Dudlock, right? Like, no. it's just so flat. It's so un, it's so un, uninvested. Megan should be talking about how she sees the world differently the way Storm does, mm-hmm. right? Remember when Storm is like, I see all these energy patterns all the time. Like, it really does rock to be me. Like, you really would like to be me because I am literally kind of on acid all the time, <laughs> right? Because she sees the, system, the the weather systems and the energy patterns, right? The complaints about the characterization of Megan have been <laughs> pretty consistent <laughs> since this new era. But um, I think we got to wrap things up, but I want to give everybody a chance to do a final thought. And I know Andrew's probably going to have to run, so I'm going to give you a chance to, to jump in first, Andrew, and Bob will give Tony the last word. Yeah. Yeah, Andrew, anything quickly that you wanted to circle back to in this issue or bring up that we didn't get a chance? Just just kind of a, a weird observation I had. I, I think a lot about jumping on points, uh, particularly in these sort of long, continuous superhero stories. And, and the sort of inverse of that is thinking about like the worst possible jumping on point. I, oh. I think that this is the worst Excalibur comic that you could give someone who's never read Excalibur <laughs> before. Do you know what I mean? I don't mean in terms of quality. I mean in terms of confusion. There's just so mm-hmm. many pieces going in so many different directions. 
I maintain that that is still Promethean Exchange. I thought you might say that. <laughs> I don't think so, though. I think it's still got it's clear possible. objectives and agents. And... Mav, anything you wanted to bring up or circle back to that we get a chance? Yeah, uh, some positive words for Casey Jones, the artist. So Casey has done one of my favorite things um, as an artist in this book, and it is subtle. And I and I wish that he'd given a whole panel to like where you could really tell. But he has one of the coolest renditions of the Colossus costume that uh, something that I love that I love that not everybody does. And in fact, Lashley didn't do it. And next issue, there'll be, you know, there'll be many hands drawing it and only Casey does it. He gives Colossus pants, but he gives him pants with very feminine cutouts along the leg, which don't work. There's no way to do, like he's got like basically a Power Girl style boob window that goes all the way down the sides of his of his pant leg. And since Colossus has no close-up in this issue, you never really get to see how it works. But like in the panel where they're all, where, where um, where you actually get to see them all walking away towards the very end and, and, and Kitty and, and Pete Wisdom are holding hands. You can see past his hands, you can see that Colossus has the the side open legs on on his costume, which I just, I kind of love. And it, it happens in a couple other panels too. And I kind of love that rendition of the costume and just wish that there was a, a full pinup of the outfit because I think Jones draws it well. Also, kudos to Jones for drawing Rain in exactly one panel of this issue, just so that you know she's on the team. <laughs> Rain is there because no one gave her anything to do, and I and presumably Casey Jones realized that and said, "Well, we've got to make sure she's around, just so you know." So I'm just going to draw her in this pinup because she she has no line, she has no acti activity, she's almost drawn as an afterthought, but she is there. Okay. <laughs> I was just thinking about that panel and like I do appreciate that although I I still don't like this costume for Rain for all the reasons we've talked about in previous episodes. Yes. Like I do appreciate that like Kurt is also wearing no pants and Colossus at least has like the cutouts on his legs. So, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> I guess yeah, lots of people are wearing sexy costumes. There's that. Um <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a really I didn't have a really good final thought other than my thought is going to be about Casey Jones again. I there's a lot that I don't like about his handling of this issue. As we've already talked about i think mm -hmm. he's a very like manga-y cute artist and yes. doesn't really have the right skill set for this particular story I agree. and sometimes that's just the case but what i do like and what's coming across even in an issue that's as dark as this one is the domestic texture of excalibur again because we do get another kitchen scene he's drawn people in casual clothes that show some thought about what these characters would individually wear and i enjoy that and we've got stuff like excalibur team members in their underwear and pajamas again which is fun we've got the shot of brian in his underwear and some of that harkens back to those claremont davis glory years to me a little bit so i appreciate those aspects of the texture of the issue in terms of the horrific demonic stuff i think I don't like Jones's handling of those things, but the domestic texture stuff I do enjoy. But um, anyway, Tony, coming back to you for the final word, anything from this comic that you would like to circle back to or bring up that we haven't got enough of a chance to talk about? I think I would just close it out that even bad comics can be like interesting or, anal or rich, Absolutely. 
rich in the sense that like they can reflect certain things about the author, right? Like I think I under, I think that I've come away understanding Warren El- Ellis's psychology so much better because of reading this comic book in all mm. of its failure, in all of its in all of its like weird nothing to say silences. I just feel like I understand him so much better in failure in a, in a very different way than I understand him through his success, like in planetary. Right. Mm. Does that make sense? That there's something really, there's something really valuable about engaging with this author at his lowest. Um, (laughs) Is this his lowest? Uh I think worse. (laughs) I I understand the sentiment. Like, I mean, it's like his preoccupations are more revealed when he's doing a worse job. Yes. yes, yes, yes. And I think that Planetary reveals his love of literature, right? His love of, mm-hmm. his, his love of, like his his deep relationship with these genres that we have deep relationships with. But this is like, you know, like just like there's, just like there's good Ellis in Pete Wisdom and bad Ellis in Scratch, there's good Ellis Planetary <laughs> and bad Ellis this. Oh, nicely done. Wow. Yeah. I am going to wrap us up with just a short letter from the Sword Strokes Letters column. And there are a couple of reasons I chose it. I chose it because I thought it was funny, but also because the letter writer, Elizabeth Holden, is a name that I recognize from this letter column. Um, she's appeared in, in this comic before. But anyway, let's do the letter and then I'll do my personal connection to it. So dear ladies and gentlemen, long ago, Marvel established a tradition of epic battles that stayed in the mind long after they were over. They became famous in the memory of comics fans and even in the collective unconscious, symbols of mighty powers coming up against powerful might. I am thinking here of such legendary confrontations as Galactus versus the Fantastic Four, Hydra versus S.H.I.E.L.D., the Green Goblin versus Spider-Man, Hercules versus Thor, and the Kree-Skrull War. The battles between Pete Wisdom and Lockheed are destined to be similarly remembered, and rightly so. Elizabeth's trying to make it happen. But the thing that is hilarious to me about Elizabeth, and I'm sure I brought this up the last time we maybe referenced one of her letters, I believe, about Nightcrawler. And it might not have been in this. It might have been a letter from Uncanny X-Men that I've tweeted out before, because I know that Elizabeth is a big fan of Nightcrawler as well. She lives on the same street in Ottawa that I used to live. (gasps) And she also has like a Carleton University email address listed here, which is where I went to school for my undergrad. So... Hmm. <laughs> just the connections between me and Elizabeth. Elizabeth, if you're out here listening to the podcast, we are destined to be friends. We need to make this happen. <laughs> Our lives are so interconnected. But um, anyway, so a variety of reasons I found that letter interesting. My pride broke it. My rage broke it. <sighs> this excellent knight, who fought with fairness and grace, was meant to win. I used Excalibur to change that verdict. I've lost, for all time, the ancient sword of my fathers, whose power was meant to unite all men, not to serve the vanity of a single man. Anyway, we will wrap things up there other than to say, Tony, thank you so very much for joining us. It was such a delight chatting with you. Before we go, we definitely need to remind our lovely listeners of the stuff you get up to and where they can find you. If you would like folks to find you online, what are the best places to find you and what past or present or future projects should they be checking out or looking out for? Well, I think that if you want more of my material, you should definitely follow um, my Twitter, that's at Theory of X. And if you are interested in a tutoring or a coaching session, you can get at me at Tony the Tutor, 
phd at gmail.com. And right now I'm working on a lot of laying out Chris Claremont's sadomasochistic philosophy and how it relates Mm. to feminism in the Dark Phoenix saga and other storylines. And I'm trying to connect it with Al Ewing and what he's doing now with the Krakoa era. Um, I'm writing that for a collection on obscenity and Hmm. a lot. And I'm also writing a piece about the Dark Phoenix saga for a book that Stephanie Burt is putting together. Ah, um, yes. Yeah. Friend of, and, friend of the show, Stephanie Burt. Oh mm-hmm. my God, yes. So um, so that that's a lot of stuff that you'll that you can look out for. And I will definitely be posting about um on Twitter um at Theory of X. Oh, and by the time this oh sorry, by the time this goes up, I might have the Theory of X podcast up. So <gasps> please come listen. My first episode will be with Ramsey Fawaz. Um awesome. who's like my best friend slash mentor. And we're going to talk about the relationship between second wave feminism and the Phoenix saga, not the Dark Phoenix saga. I'm sure that'll be an awesome convo with the two of you. Um, So yeah, folks can look out for that. If it's not quite up when this episode comes out, we'll still make sure we retweet it for you and link it in our socials. But uh, yeah, just thanks so much again for joining us, Tony. Thanks, guys. I had so much fun. Next, Excalibur hits the century mark in an explosive mega-sized issue, and we'll do our best to bring you a mega-sized combo to contend with it. But of course, we do that every single week. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our earlier episodes. You can find those via our website or the Vox Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our website, goshgollywow.com, where we've got some fun extras, and via Twitter at GoshGollyWow, where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras. Thank you, Andrew and Mav, for another inflammatory convo. Thank you, Tony, for stoking the intellectual fires with us. Thank you all for listening, and a special thanks to Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for a truly epic theme song. Play us out. Yeah, thanks so much again.